Now I'd ask that we turn our attention to the word. Please take out your own copy of scripture and open to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. <clears throat> As you turn there, I'll just share with you. I, I honestly, I don't make a habit of watching false teachers. I, I don't tend to do that. I intentionally avoid that, in fact. However, a few weeks ago, I was in one of those circumstances where it was unavoidable, where I was in the deli waiting for some sandwiches to be made for our family. And it was after church on a Sunday here, and the, the deli had Joel Osteen on the screen. And I was watching Joel give a motivational speech to his large weekly gathering of self-worshippers, and he said something like this. He said, people always say to me, Joel, you've forgotten what the church used to be. You've forgotten the teachings of old. You've forgotten the way things are to be done. And I say to them, I haven't forgotten. I just didn't want to stay there. That's a problem. Interestingly, there was a round of applause from the audience, and then I was shocked by this. I was actually not only shocked by the statement, but then directly afterwards he said, we're just going to take a short break, and I'll come back and close this in prayer. And then they literally showed a video commercial on the screen of a book that he was promoting before they closed the service. Rarely do false teachers so clearly tell you that they have left the truth behind. Rarely are they so obviously saying, I don't really care about the historic doctrine of the church. I'm going to do my own thing. Departing from the teachings of the apostles is not something we should take lightly. We don't get to pick and choose the biblical teachings that we like and discard those that we don't. And in today's text, Paul is going to instruct Timothy regarding the centrality of Scripture in the church and how a focus on that Word of God results for us in godliness. So please follow along now as I start reading in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Paul writes, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let's pray. Father God, as we come before your word today, Lord, I ask that you would help us to come humbly, that you would help us to come rightly, that we would submit ourselves to the truth. Lord, I do pray that even now as we come before the text, that you would open our understanding and that we would believe it. God, I pray that you would be casting out seeds, just like we see in the parable, and that we would have our hearts be good soil. Lord, prepare our hearts to hear so that we might produce, even as the parable says, 30, 60, or even 100-fold. Let us produce good fruit. May we hear these words and not walk away unchanged, but walk away in such a, ma a manner that we would produce a crop of godliness in our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Before getting into the main point of the text, what I would like to do is I'd focus on a challenging section of this passage, I want to first acknowledge that these verses here at the end of our text have produced some very deep contention 
in the theological world. In particular, there is one line at the center of many debates about the nature of salvation and the extent of the atonement. And what I want to do is deal with that right up front because it is important, but it is by no means the main point of the text. So let's get our mind around that, and then we can move forward and look at the main substance of what Paul is trying to say. The controversy arises over verse 10. Look at that again with me. It says, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, here's the controversy, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now here is the question, what does it mean that God is the Savior of all people? Well, there are some who argue that this passage indicates that the death of Christ was universal and that it was in God's intention and hope that every single person without exception would therefore come to salvation. This is the traditional Arminian viewpoint. However, let's look carefully at the wording here. It does not say that God desires to save all people or that he made it possible to save all people. It does not say that he went 99% of the way and you just have to go that last 1% of the way in order for him to be your savior. It says that he is the savior of all people. And that means that whoever is included in the phrase all people, every last one of them are saved. You cannot be the savior of people who are not saved. That would make you a potential savior, not an actual savior. So as we've heard before, the word all is not always used in the same way. And in this case, it is being used to speak of all people without distinction not to speak of all people without exception. In other words, it is saying that God is the Savior of all kinds of people from every race and tribe and tongue. John MacArthur explains it in this way. He says, Paul's point is not that he actually saves the whole world, for that would be universalism, and Scripture clearly teaches not all will be saved. The point is that he is the only Savior to whom anyone in the world can turn for forgiveness and eternal life, and therefore he urges all to embrace him as Savior. Jesus Christ is proffered to the world as Savior. What is universalism that he's speaking about? Universalism is just the belief that everyone, regardless of their lifestyle, regardless of their relationship to Christ, everyone is going to heaven. We know clearly from Scripture that there are many who will not make it there. David Guzik adds of this, he says, It isn't that all men are saved in a universalist sense, but that there is only one Savior for all men. It isn't as if Christians have one Savior and others might have another Savior. But notice Paul's point, especially of those who believe. Jesus' work is adequate to save all, but is only effective in saving those who come to him by faith. In other words, this statement is not regarding the extent of the atonement. Rather, it is a declaration of the exclusivity of Christ as the one and only way to the Father. Was the blood of Jesus sufficient to save everyone? Yes. I'm going to ask you again. Was the blood of Jesus sufficient to save everyone? Yes. Will it save everyone? No. There will be some who never trust in Christ and experience salvation. And God's purpose in salvation was particular. He has set his affection on people from before the foundation of the earth. And he knows who his sheep are, and they know him, and they follow him. They hear his voice, and they come after his leading. So, with all of that being said, now that we've come through the end of the controversial part of the text, let's turn our attention now to the main point. 
Let's ask the question, what makes someone a good pastor? Not just in our eyes, but in God's eyes. Now that's something that I want to know. That's something that I desperately need to know because I desire to be a good servant in that way. But I want you to know it is also very significant that you understand this because you are going to, for the rest of your life, fall under the authority of pastoral leadership. It is very important that you are able to look at passages like this one and discern whether or not you are being instructed properly, whether or not you are in a church that actually cares deeply about what God says they should care about. Paul begins this passage with a conditional statement. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now, this, this is not a common way that we encourage people in our day. Now, we need to understand, Timothy was prone to discouragement. It seems that he was already discouraged. But normally, if you and I are attempting to encourage somebody, we don't normally say, well, if you do this, then you'll still be a good pastor. No, he doesn't. That's not how we normally do things. Instead, we say something like, well, hey, look, you're doing great. Let's just look at your track record. Let's just encourage you by saying, I believe in you. Or maybe if someone falls short or is struggling, we tend to simply say, look, you're going to get there. We're all on a journey together, and someday you're going to reach those goals. But what Paul simply says is, if you do these things, then you will be a good servant. The way Paul encourages Timothy is by setting before him the requirements of what it looks like to be a good servant of Christ. And in order to do this, we must put these things before the brothers. So the question we have to ask is, what are these things that he's talking about? These things are all of the teachings that Paul has presented so far. This book is expansive. There are many things that Paul references, and he's calling back now to everything we've been learning all the way from chapter 1, verse 1. And Paul is making it clear to Timothy that in order to be a good servant, he must instruct the people about false teachers. He must talk to them about ministry roles and responsibilities and ecclesiology, and most importantly, to teach them what Paul wrote about all the way back in chapter 1, that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. He must teach about what Paul said in chapter 3, that Jesus is the mystery of godliness. Now, it may not be the most comfortable thing to teach about women in ministry or church discipline, but according to Paul, if pastors and the church fail to do this, they fail to be good servants of Christ. So what does it mean to put these things before the brothers? Well, the easiest way to answer that is to see how Paul reiterates it down in verse 11. There he simply adds, command and teach these things. Notice that he distinguishes here between commanding and teaching. Well, what's the difference? To be a good servant, Timothy must command his church in doctrine. Let's look at that word command. This has been translated into English sometimes as prescribe these things or insist upon these things. The Greek word that Paul, Paul uses here is actually for the command that is commonly used in military or courtroom or and the doctor's office. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to borrow from a commentator. I'm going to take an extended quote, so I want you to follow along here on the screen. But I think this was the most helpful in getting my mind around what this word paragolo actually means in Greek, how it used to be used. Paragolo was used in the military, indicating an order from an officer to those under his command. With the implication, that order called for unhesitating and unqualified obedience. Soldiers were bound to obey the command of their superiors. Paragolo was used in secular Greek as a legal term, as, for example, an official court summons, the equivalent of a modern subpoena, which to disregard made a person liable to severe punishment and bound by the court's orders. 
Paragolo was used in medicine to describe the doctor's prescription or instruction to the patient. The patient was bound to follow the doctor's instruction if he wanted to get well. It's notable that every use here of Paragolo included the idea of binding a person to make the proper response to an instruction. Thus, the soldier was bound to obey the orders of his superior, a person involved in a legal matter was bound by the court's orders, and a patient was bound to follow his doctor's instruction, end end quote, and well said. Paul makes it really clear for Timothy or any other pastor to carry out his task properly. He must insist and hold people to the commands of the Scripture. But he doesn't just say to command them. If he did just use that single word, it would distort the image of what pastoral care is all about. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of a military commander, I don't really think of him being gentle or caring as he passes along information. And I certainly don't view a subpoena as a gracious way to lead. And how many of us have ever had interactions with doctors who have less than an adequate bedside manner? And that is why Paul writes that pastors are not only to command, but also to teach these things. Pastors are supposed to instruct the flock in the Word. Sadly, this is not always the priority of pastors. Let me briefly share with you just two stories of how this can sometimes look distorted in the modern church. I have a friend who is now pastoring in California. He went to a well-known, I would say formerly solid seminary, and because he was my friend, I helped him with some of his preaching classes as he was going through seminary, and mainly my job was just to listen to sermons that he was preaching for that class and and just give him some feedback. However, this was really difficult for me because what I was looking for and what the professor was looking for were wildly different. For example, one of his assignments was to preach a sermon with no Bible verses. Another one was to write a sermon that is a narrative story that you can share without any notes or without ever making someone look down at their Bible. That's often how people are being taught to preach. This is one of the larger seminaries on the East Coast. They're told, avoid the clear, straightforward, expositional teaching of the Word. They say people will not hear it. They won't listen. They don't desire it. It's too boring for them. Well, Paul tells Timothy that to do so would be a grave departure from his calling. Or to put it more crassly, according to Paul, people who do this would be considered bad servants of Christ. Several years ago, there was a man who was somehow distantly connected to the church I was pastoring in Massapequa, Redeeming Grace Fellowship. And this man came to our church, and he was involved in the leadership of a church growth movement, and it was a church planting organization. And he and I spoke for a very long time. I actually drove around Massapequa with him for several hours as we talked about the ministry, and he wanted to give me an assessment of the church. And I don't remember his exact words, but he said something to me at the end like this. He says, it seems to me that you put a lot of time into teaching and preaching ministries. you got to stop doing that. You're wasting so much time and effort on teaching, and you're not putting it into evangelism. The people who are already saved, someday they'll figure it out. But you need to be out there. Now remember, you're not a pastor, you're a church planter. That's how the conversation concluded. Now listen, I I believe in evangelism. I think it is so important. I think that people should be individually evangelistic. I believe in corporate evangelism. However, Paul does not say to Timothy that evangelism is what's necessary to be a good pastor. According to Paul, a faithful pastor is one who finds every way possible to feed the flock and engage them with the Word of God. He prioritizes the teaching and the commanding of Scripture. 
Consider what the chief command of Timothy's calling is according to 2 Timothy. Paul says to him to do what? Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. That's the central aspect of pastoral ministry, is just to be a conduit for the word of God to go to the people. Consider Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. His disciples were often foolish, or they were slow to understand. Yet Jesus graciously taught them, and he showed them truth. He explained to them how they were to think, and therefore how they were to live. They often still didn't understand it. I I think of the occasion when Jesus tells them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they're going to crucify me. And the next conversation that the disciples have, do you know what it is? They argue over which one of them is the greatest. Jesus shows us that teaching means both proclaiming broadly the word of God and also walking with people through real events of life, through real trials, and showing and instructing them in specific ways how to follow after Christ. Good pastors are called to command and to teach. Well, how are we trying to do that here at Gateway Church? Here are some of the main avenues that we are traveling so that we can focus our attention on the word. First, we ensure that the sermons that you hear on Sunday mornings are exegetical explanations of, and applications of actual Bible texts. We don't want to just start with an emotion or a feeling or an idea that we want you to learn. We want to start with the Word of God and say, God, what do you have for us to learn? And then apply that to our church. The second thing is that we attempt to saturate our services with Scripture reading and exhortation. You'll notice that every time that there is someone up here, we are trying to ground everything we are saying in the Word of God, not man's opinion. Third, we make sure that the songs we sing are teaching truth from God's Word. Now, they're not always going to be the most flashy songs or the most catchy songs, but they are going to be words that feed the soul because they are in alignment with scriptural truth. Fourthly, most Tuesday nights, we have a Bible study right here where we're making our way slowly and methodically through the scripture together. Fifth, you have community groups that are supposed to be places where you are discussing the person and the work of Christ as he is displayed to us in the scripture. Family night is a time when we teach parents from the Bible about how to lead their families, and we teach kids from the Bible about what the gospel means. And finally, each year since 2016, I've created a Bible reading plan for our church, and I've noticed something, and that is that a lot of people start off strong, and then they they really begin to struggle about this time of the year. And by the time the sun starts coming back out in March, uh, they're a month behind. <laughs> you know, so it's like a struggle to make it through. And that's because I was trying to walk our church through the whole Bible in a year. So I've decided what we're doing this year, slowing down so that we'll just do one chapter a day. And I also realized that if I were to write some things for you, it may encourage you to keep on track as you read through them and understand a little bit more of what you're reading. Now, to be honest, there's a lot better things that I could send you to read than the stuff that I'm writing. Those shepherding notes are, are not the best commentary that you could ever receive. But I also know that I think if I'm writing it, you're probably more likely to read it, just to be honest. And therefore, I want to be a good shepherd and try to walk through that together with you. Now, I won't do that every year, but for this year, as a way to help us engage with the Word and get the practice of daily being in the Scripture, that's one way that we can do that together. That's not to mention things like the men's breakfast or the ladies' Bible studies or vacation Bible school or many other ministries. They're all grounded on the Word of God. And if at any point we walk away from that as the central aspect of what we're doing, then we have failed our calling. 
these ministries might shift a little bit or they might change in format or in name, but the one thing that this church must not lose sight of is the commitment of the proclamation of the word of God. We need to dedicate ourselves to never watering it down or attempting to make it palatable to the culture or twisting it in any way for our own purposes. Paul told Timothy that that is what he must teach. But then he tells Timothy what he must avoid. He says in verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Now, this is not the only time Paul gives this kind of command to Timothy. I want you to see the other ways that he says this, because that will help us flesh out what he's getting at here. We covered this idea all the way back in chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, when Paul writes, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by the faith. So here you can see that these, whatever these myths and genealogies are, they are paralleled with false doctrine. It is considered false teaching by Paul. He also reiterates this point at the very conclusion of this book in chapter 6, verse 20 through 21, where he says, O Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. You see there the irreverent babble and contradictions. This must be a very important point for Paul to be making, being that it is the very first and the very last command in the entire book of 1 Timothy. Watch out for these myths and genealogies and irreverent babble and contradictions. And at the very least, what we know about this is that Paul has already said it is a false gospel. It is a false teaching capable of causing people to swerve away from the faith. It is the opposite of stewarding the word of God. Several years ago, there was a man who heard one of my sermons from when I was preaching through Genesis. He heard a sermon on Noah, and he mailed me a long letter, and it was, a, it was like a booklet that he had written connected with it, um, and it was to prove that Noah, he said, actually had two wives, and that both of these wives were on the ark with him. Now, clearly, that's not a biblical teaching because the Bible clearly says that only eight people were on the ark, and we know who all eight of them are. Yet, I, I looked at this man's website, and it was clear that he had spent countless hours of his life scouring ancient source texts in West Asian mythologies in order to prove his point, that Noah had an extra wife there on the boat with him. Well, why would he do that? The point is easily refuted by Scripture, and even if it was unclear and the Bible didn't expressly teach it, what is this going to prove? There's literally no value in making that the mission of his life. Yet he was so focused on this myth, this genealogy, this, this unimportant aspect that he couldn't focus on any other aspect of the scripture. You could see that all the rest of his doctrine was kind of all over the place, wild and drawn from various traditions. But this was the one thing that he had made the central core of his Christian life. And I think the brother was probably genuinely saved. But why bother focusing in on this detail rather than the more pressing issues of Scripture? Now, I also remember receiving an email after the first Sunday morning sermon that I ever preached. <clears throat> and there was a man who latched on to every simple thing that was like a side note that I said. Now, I want to admit to you, I still have a lot of growth in preaching. I, I, I'm not standing here saying I'm a great preacher, but back then I was bad. I was, I was rough. I've listened back through some of those sermons, and I don't wish it on anyone. In fact, I've requested, in some cases, could you please remove that? And people have said, uh, no, we're going to keep that up there. It's bad. I, I, I admit that. But there was a detail that this man 
latched onto that was a historic note regarding the nature of Nazareth and the way that it functioned in Jewish society. And he wrote me an email saying that since I clearly did not understand or teach accurately about the specific cultural dynamics of life in that little town of Nazareth, then obviously the rest of my sermon was not worth listening to. And to be honest, I was actually pretty hurt by that. And I was taking it to heart, and I looked up every single commentary that I had. I borrowed things from my pastor at the time. I was like, I need to know if what this is saying is true, even though I, I don't think it was important even to this day. But regardless, any which way you slice it, everyone that I read actually agreed with what I had said and either ignored or disregarded completely what this man had said, yet he took his own perspective of this idea about an unimportant detail that's not even central to the argument of the text, and he made that so important in his mind that he was unwilling to listen to anything else that I had to say. The main point of that sermon that I was preaching was not to be a Pharisee, and I think that he was leaning in that direction as he pursued only this unimportant detail that he made such a significant aspect of his life. And Paul is telling us not to avoid the things that are in Scripture, but these extra-biblical things that you're arguing about, these genealogies and these myths, they're leading you into trouble. Notice the way that Paul reiterates this command in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16. He says, Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. This is really helpful in determining what is and is not categorized as worthless babble or myths or genealogies. They are things which are not stated within the scope of Scripture and that people have made into such a big deal that it leads them toward being ungodly. It affects their character. It affects their conduct. We also see that clearly in our text today, this is present. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Paul contrasts here the entertaining of these myths as the opposite of training for godliness. So let's ask the question now. Here we get to the meat of the text. Are you training yourself for godliness? Verse 8 compares this training with working out your physical body. He says, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. God cares about how we treat our bodies. He refers to our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. And for some of us, myself included, this can be seen as a reminder from the Lord that there is value in physical fitness. We will all be better at doing the things that the Lord provides for us to do if we have the strength and health to do it. So I'm already seeking to improve in this area. I realize that my appearance doesn't reveal this, and hopefully soon it will begin to, but I have already tried to put into practice some of these things by working out more readily and taking to heart what the Scripture teaches, that there is value in bodily training by watching more carefully what I eat and pushing myself beyond the ease and comfort of relaxation and into physical exertion. That's good for me. I've got a long way to go, and I would, I would love your encouragement in that. But the point of this passage is not physical fitness. The point of this passage is not to say, hey, get up and work out. Paul acknowledges that physical training has some value, but he says that godliness is of value in every way. It holds with it a promise for both this life now and in eternity. This indicates that godliness has both temporal and eternal blessings. It is worth pursuing because it is good for you in every way. When you act in a way that is ungodly, you are always going to regret it. You are always going to look back on that with regret. I would give the world and everything in it to go back and take back some of the things that I've done in, or said in the past. And I believe that you would do the same. 
but you would never regret anything that you do in worshipful obedience to the Lord. In his little book, The Practice of Godliness, the late great Jerry Bridges wrote this. He said, Timothy was personally responsible for his progress in godliness. He was not to trust the Lord for that progress and then relax, though he certainly understood that any progress he made was only through divine enablement. We Christians may be very disciplined and industrious in our business, our studies, our home, or even our ministry, but we tend to be lazy when it comes to exercise in our own spiritual lives. We would much rather pray, Lord, make me godly, and expect Him to pour some godliness into our souls in some mysterious way. God does, in fact, work in a mysterious way to make us godly, but He does not do this apart from the fulfillment of our own personal responsibility. Paul is letting Timothy know that knowledge is only one piece of the puzzle here, Timothy. You can know the right things and teach the right things and say the right things, but then you have to live those things. Godliness must follow, and he reveals that this is not only true for Timothy, but for all people who follow Christ when he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. By saying that, he is saying, look, I'm not just talking to you as a pastor here. I am saying this is true for everyone. Let everyone adopt this understanding This is not just for pastors. So what is godliness? If we are to live in this way, if we are to act in this way, what what is godliness? Well, godliness is what happens when someone both fears the Lord and loves the Lord. That combination causes us to respond to God with reverent, obedient devotion. Godliness means that we become like God in terms of our desires in our heart and therefore the work of our hands. In other words, godliness is the actual rubber meeting the road in the Christian life. It is the outcome of God's work in our hearts. Or to put it into two words, easy to remember, godliness is Christ-like living. Here's the question. Are you actually striving for that? Are you striving for godliness? According to this text, godliness is never going to randomly appear in your life. You cannot be passive about it. You are commanded to train yourself for it. Are you taking note of patterns or thought behaviors that are displeasing to God and seeking to eliminate them? Are you replacing your love of self and love of sin with heartfelt devotion to Christ? Now look, God doesn't require that you lift weights or run laps, but thankfully we're not going to be given some kind of a stress test before we get into heaven where he says, all right, hop on the treadmill, let's give you 10 minutes and see how you can do. He's not going to do that, thank God. But he does teach us to come daily to the Word and train. And we are to go to him in prayer and train ourselves for godliness. And we are to fellowship with the church and train ourselves for godliness. And we are to reject temptation and train ourselves for godliness. And we are to see and acknowledge that there is temptation that comes from the world and the flesh and the devil. And in the face of that, we are to train ourselves for godliness. One of my former professors, Don Whitney, once wrote, Probably the most common reason for the lack of spiritual growth among Christians is inconsistency with the spiritual disciplines. We don't grow in grace if we fail to use the God-given means for growing in grace. It's a simple fact. Those who grow the most and the fastest are those who place themselves in the channels of grace, such as the intake of God's word, prayer, worship, service, evangelism, silence, journaling, learning, and so on. But why bother? Why bother doing that? Look, for the most part, I have not done a good job with my physical fitness because I really honestly have felt like I don't have to. Because most of my job, I sit around and I read books and I type on a computer and then I stand up for maybe an hour and I talk. And it doesn't require that much physical labor for me to do that. So I have let it go by. Actually, to be honest, 
the time when I most got out of shape physically was when I was in seminary, and the main reason why was because I was working night shifts at a hotel, and to keep myself awake, I would just pound sodas. I was drinking lots of sugar. I don't drink coffee, so I was drinking a lot of soda. And then I would go back home, and I would sleep for two hours, and then I would go back to, to school, and I would sit in class, and I was trying to stay awake, so I would drink soda. And then I was not eating well and not sleeping well, and I just gained a lot of weight in seminary. And I felt like, no big deal. Not huge. Not a problem. And then I graduated from seminary, and in the intervening time, before moving back to New York, I worked for eight months at a company where I was unloading couches from trucks all day in a warehouse, and I realized how out of shape I was. I realized very quickly the necessity of losing some of those pounds and beginning to learn how to breathe again as I carried things up and down the aisles of that warehouse. It's very important to understand that there are going to be times in your spiritual life where you just feel like you don't need it. I'm getting by just fine, but then when a trial comes or temptation comes, you're not going to be prepared. Why do we train for godliness? Paul tells us in verse 10, For to this end we strive, because we have our hope set on the living God. Why do we pursue godliness? Why do we reject worldliness? We do it because our hope is not in the things the world can give. We are no longer allured by the empty promises of sin. We act in ungodly ways when we think that sin is going to make us happy. We act in ungodly ways when our hope is placed in comfort or temporary pleasure. But our hope is not found there. Our hope is found in the living God. Therefore, strive to imitate his character and to live by his commands. Let me ask you, do you know this living God? Have you found hope in him? Now, in a room this size with this many people, it's very possible that there's somebody who has heard the gospel many times yet never bowed the knee to Christ. The good news is this. The Bible teaches that regardless of what you have done, Regardless of the number of sins on your ledger, you can come to Christ and you can be saved and forgiven of it all. It just requires faith that his life was given for yours, that he substituted his perfect record for your sin, that he gave it to you freely so that you might have life. And we know that we have life if we turn from those sins and follow after him. For those who have been saved, we train for godliness because Jesus is worthy of our entire lives. Galatians 2.20 puts it this way. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This week, we're going to be jumping into Galatians in the Bible reading plan. I encourage you to follow along. You're going to be digging into that passage a little bit as well. I want to know, does that describe you? Are you living by faith in the Son of God? Are you putting to death your passions so that you can honor Christ in your mind and in your body? I love John Owen's famous quote, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is worthy. So let's use the avenues that God has set forth for us, training our daily lives to enter the gymnasium of Jesus Christ, working out for godliness in our own lives so that he might receive glory forever. Let me just briefly close this sermon by giving you seven quick application points about what this looks like in our lives. First, take care of your body. Paul makes it clear that there is value in physical fitness, and it's not just something we should overlook or downplay. So don't worship your body, but also don't ignore it either. Care for it. Be a good steward of the wonderful gift that God has given you. Now, the remaining six applications that I'm going to give you, none of them are about physical fitness, but all of them I am going to relate to physical fitness because what Paul does here is he parallels physical fitness with pursuit of training in godliness. So the second thing I, I encourage you to do is to examine yourself. 
In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul calls on believers to examine ourselves. Look, if you never look into a mirror or step onto a scale, it becomes really easy for you to ignore your physical state. Well, similarly, if you never look into the Word of God or listen to preaching or discuss your spiritual life with others, you're likely going to be ignorant of just how flabby your spiritual life has become. So examine yourself. Take genuine stock of your growth. Have you stagnated in the faith? Are there aspects of your spiritual life that you have simply ignored? Examine yourself. Next, make a plan. Just like physical fitness, godliness never occurs by accident. And the best way to remain intentional about growing in godliness is to make a plan of attack. The main reason that I've created that Bible reading plan for you is to help you develop a plan of attack in regards to your Bible reading and theological instruction. But that's just one piece of the puzzle. There are many aspects of your life that you also need to make plans. When do you pray? How do you prioritize fellowship with the saints? How do you practice hospitality or generosity or self-sacrificial love? Make a plan or you won't. Fourth, remove hindrances. Now, I know that when I'm trying to lose weight, that I have to get all the sugary things out of my house. Why do I do that? Because otherwise, I end up making myself a big bowl of cereal at midnight, and then the next morning, I will eat the cookies that you left at my house for breakfast. And I know I will do that because I know that in those moments, I am weak to the temptation that is before me. In the Christian life, there are many things that are not necessarily bad things, but because you don't display self-control, they can become hindrances. Last fall, several of the men in this church teamed up to preach through uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and 2. And there we read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now you'll notice here that there are two kinds of things to lay aside. One of them is obvious. It's sin. You must lay aside sin. We all know that to be true. But also, there's another set of things that is not so apparent. He refers to it as a weight. Well, what is that? What's the weight in your life that is weighing you down spiritually? Social media, video games, hobbies, unsaved friends, binge-watching Netflix or YouTube or news. There are millions of other possible answers. What is hindering your growth? Set that aside, at least until you can get healthy in your walk with Christ, and then reevaluate how you are able to get that back into your life in a healthy, balanced way, or if you need to just cut it out indefinitely. One of the things that I removed several years ago was social media. Got rid of all of it because I realized it was unhealthy for my spiritual walk with Christ, and so I eliminated, eliminated it from my life, thinking, well, if I ever need to get it back, then I will. And to the glory of God, I have been so much more happy without it. And I have just uh, seen the encouragement of my soul to be able to remove one hindrance from my life. Cut off the weight that hinders you. Remove hindrances. Fifth, exercise. Physical exercise is the use of muscle to overcome resistance. For the Christian, exercising our face Faith means putting into practice what we know to be true even when there is resistance. We feel that resistance sometimes from the world. Sometimes we feel it from the devil. Primarily, you're going to feel resistance from the flesh, your own self. Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. Work it out. Work out your salvation. Learn to say no to small things, and then it becomes so much easier when a temptation comes to say no to big things. Train yourself by exercising your faith. Sixth, get accountability. In terms of physical fitness, I will always give up on my resolutions. Always. Unless I commit to someone else 
that I am going to do it. And even then, sometimes I've given up. <laughs> but I know that if somebody's going to ask me about it, then I'm not going to go through that drive-thru, and I'm not going to go purchase that ice-cold soda. Why? Because I know that somebody cares about me, and they're going to ask me how I am doing. Similarly, fighting for godliness is much more likely to be fruitful when you are sharing the burden with others, and they know how you are weak, and they know how to help you as you plan to grow. If you do not have accountability in a relationship with somebody in the church regarding spiritual things, then you are probably going to become lazy and haphazard with your walk with Christ. You need to get accountability. Seventh, keep your eye on the prize. Now, if you're trying to lose weight, then you imagine that target weight that you're aiming for, or maybe it's that pair of pants that you want to fit into once again. Well, that hope carries you through and gives you strength to say no to the things that you want. It'll let you say no to the cravings. Why? Because you have a better hope. You can say no because you have said yes to something better. Well, how much greater is the hope that we have as believers? We have to strive for godliness because our hope is fixed on the living God. Set your eyes on the joy of pleasing him. We're not working to earn something. We are striving with every fiber of our being because we love someone. It is our reflex to the fact that God, our great and good Father, has loved us first, that we now respond by gracious obedience. And that product of that, the fear of the Lord, the love of the Lord, results in godly living. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the text that you have set before us today, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust you enough to put it into practice. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who is just spiritually out of shape, who has just let their, themselves go in terms of their spiritual life. God, I pray that you would cause us to be spiritually fit. Help us to train ourselves for godliness. May we be a church that is a shining beacon of what it looks like to follow Christ well. Lord, I pray that we would come to the word, we would be convicted by it, and we would live by it. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.